Do you ever get intimidated by reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, where God seems to be mad all the time? Well, if so, you have to listen to this show. As part of his series on the Torah, Dennis Prager talks openly about why God does what he does in the Old Testament. Dennis has led a unique life. He has a daily radio show heard around America and around the world. He's talked to millions of people. He's traveled to 130 countries and all 50 American states. He co-founded the online nonprofit Prager University, and it's been viewed around the world over a billion times. Today, we're going to be talking about his brand new book, The Rational Bible, Deuteronomy, God's Blessings and Curses. This is part of a greater series that he's writing called The Rational Bible, where he's going to write about all five books of the Torah. Well, my guest today is the amazing Dennis Prager. We're going to talk about your new book on Deuteronomy. So, Mr. Prager, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, you are a delight. I am very happy to be with you. Thank you. You know, as we were talking before, uh, these books of yours are my favorite. I am not a biblical scholar, but I love uh, reading about exegesis and people like you who can actually go through scripture and um, you with the Pentateuch and explaining what things are there. What does Deuteronomy mean? What does that word mean? Second law. This is uh, unique of the five books that constitute the basis of the Old and New Testaments called the Torah. And it is called that because it is Moses summarizing everything that happened and the laws that God gave him. It has more laws than any other book of the Bible. I think it's 240 something. I explain virtually every single one. And that's why it took me so long to do Deuteronomy. Happily, I know biblical Hebrew very, very well, but that's not enough. You obviously also need to believe you understand what the intentions are. And I do believe that. I've taught it all of my life. I think that this is life transforming with its insights. I don't think it. I know it. It's transformed my life. Mm -hmm. It transforms others. There are 4,000 reviews of Genesis and Exodus, my rational Bible. And now this next volume is Deuteronomy. I didn't go in order. After this will be Numbers and then finally Leviticus. And I, I am in love with the first five books. They are my vehicle to God mm -hmm. because my, my route to faith is through reason. It's not the only route to faith. People have all sorts of roots. For some, it's nature. For some, it's epiphany or theophany. God has appeared to them in some way. I honor all of them. But my root is reason. If it doesn't make sense, I don't accept it. So I try to make sense of everything. And that's why it's called the Rational Bible. I love it. You're a modern-day C.S. Lewis, I tell you. That's kind of you to say, and it's very arrogant of me to say, I hope that's true. Uh, if you will, a Jewish C.S. Lewis. Yeah, okay. 
You know, I think that's exactly what we need today in our culture because people are so suspicious of Judeo-Christian believers. And so many people, I think, in the past 30 years have done ourselves a disservice by talking about the emotional aspect of faith rather than the intellectual aspect or the academic. And I think that younger people want to know deeper. They don't want to know what well, you should believe just because I believed. You know, I grew up sort of, I believed what my parents told me, but it's not that way anymore. And so I think to have books like this that really show younger people why the Bible makes sense is very important. And then to have it explained. You, um, and that's exactly what you do, you talk about five things that God wants from us. Can you talk about what those five things are, please? Wow, you're referring to something specific and, and I don't recall exactly. I could tell you my, uh, the, the most immediate thing that comes to my mind is, it sounds simplistic, but I must say, I think it's everything. God wants us to be good. And God does not want us to be perfect. He didn't create a creature that could be perfect. That is my bottom line belief in life. It's why I call myself an ethical monotheist. The innovation of the, of the first five books is ethical monotheism, that, the, that there is a God who demands good from everyone. And it's the same moral law for everyone whether you were a pagan or an Israelite, God demanded certain basic moral behavior from both of you. And we don't have that today. We have the belief in secular society that ethics doesn't need God. And we have uh, among some believers that God alone without demands of ethics is fine. So my view is ethics needs God and God needs to be an ethical being. And I, I prove it over and over again in, in these three books that are that are thus far out, the Rational Bible series. It's amazing to me that people think that God is not necessary. One of my videos for PragerU, and I only do one out of 10 videos for PragerU, the other 90% other people do. But I did a video on if God did not say do not murder, is murder wrong? And of course, the answer is no. And by the way, every secular philosopher, every atheist philosopher until the present day agreed with that. If God, if there is no God saying do not murder, you can believe murder is wrong. You can feel murder is wrong. You can think murder is wrong, but you don't know murder is wrong. Mm -hmm. there, it doesn't have an objective basis, morality, without God. So uh, this is big stuff. By the way, talking about that, just one more point, just to show how much I think people can learn from uh, my, my commentaries. It doesn't say do not kill. It says do not murder in the Ten Commandments. And it's a very, very, Hebrew-like English has two words for homicide. And killing is not banned. You can kill in self-defense. You can kill to eat. If it said do not kill, you'd have to be a pacifist. But there are times when killing is moral. Therefore, it is murder that's forbidden. Mm -hmm. Back to moral law, if people don't believe in God, which of course a lot of people don't now, 
and they don't believe that God established a moral law. How do people justify a moral law? I mean, they say, of course, that it's different for every person, but how do they do that? They don't believe that there is a moral law. They believe that if they feel it is good or feel it is bad, that is sufficient. If you were to ask a secular person, tell me, what text do you have that guides you with regard to moral law in your life? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. They would say, uh, and, and some of them are, are wonderful people, but they would say, well, what are you talking about? I just I just know X is right and, or, and Y is wrong. And, and, uh, but, but of course, the result of, of all this godless thinking is that the most intellectually inclined say men give birth. There's more nonsense in the highly educated secular world than there is anywhere in the religious world. And by the way, it's one of the things that keeps me religious. Uh, I, I wrote this long, long ago, quarter of a century ago, how I found God at Columbia. I, I was walking around my graduates. I went there to graduate school in international affairs, and I was being taught nonsense. The nonsense of the universities is not new. It's gone berserk, but it's not new. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned men and women were basically the same from my professors, just as they were taught later. So I, I couldn't believe what I, I was being taught. So one day, walking around Columbia, I was thinking about this, and all of a sudden, a verse from the Bible came back to my brain. I had not said it since second grade. I went to Jewish schools called yeshivas till I was 19. Half the day was in Hebrew and half the day was in English, secular subjects in English, religious subjects in Hebrew. I have a very, very good background in this, and I, and I thank my parents for it. So I had not said this verse since second grade, and all of a sudden it popped into my brain. It's the only time I had what we call an epiphany. And what was the verse? It was came into my brain in Hebrew, but the verse in English is well known to you and I'm sure many of your viewers slash listeners. And that was wisdom begins with fear of God. And that answered my whole issue. There's no wisdom at Columbia because there's no God at Columbia. The most secular institutions are the universities and they are the stupidest. There is more idiocy coming out of universities than any other single institution, and it is because they are devoid of wisdom. And they are devoid of wisdom because they are devoid of the source of wisdom, the Bible. The Bible is the source of wisdom. Even if you don't believe in God, the Bible is the source of wisdom. I rather have an agnostic who was governed by biblical wisdom than a believer who wasn't. That's a great point. I never thought about that. How do you answer people, I'm diverting from my questions that I have for you, but how do you answer people who say, because I get this a lot, well, you know, how can you know that the Bible is really the word of God? It was written by a lot of men and men, you know, make a lot of mistakes and so forth and through history. So what is your response to that? Well, that's right up my alley because the more I know about the Bible and certainly the first five books, which is the ones I most want to convey to people, the more I, I think it's either God is the ultimate author or supermen are. I list in Genesis, I think, about 18 ways 
and I, I listed throughout my commentary, actually, how this is the first time in human history that this point is made. Why would people come up with, for example, from the beginning, the Genesis 1-1 is the opposite of everything every culture on earth believed. Genesis 1-1 said God created nature. In every other religion and philosophy of the time, gods were part of nature. The thunder god, the rain god, the sun god, the water god, mm -hmm. the animal god. But not here. God is the creator of all of these things that you thought were gods, all of nature. That alone undid everything that had come before it. Number two, I'm just thinking off the top of my head of things that are brand new in these first five books, that God has a moral law for all humanity. There was no such thing as universal moral law prior to the Bible. And I'll give you one from Deuteronomy that nobody knows unless they really know their Deuteronomy. This is an incredible law, which alone tells me the, this is beyond anything that people would have just come up with on their own. Everyone knows how much rape takes place in wartime. It is part of war. You see a woman, you rape her. Simple as that. That was the rule for virtually every army in history. Certainly the rule for the, in, in the 20th century, the, the Soviet army in Germany. So here's the law. Here's an amazing law in Deuteronomy. You see a woman that you want in wartime, you may not touch her. You bring her to your home. She must sit and mourn her family for 30 days. Again, you can't touch her. Mm -hmm. If you want to touch her, you must marry her first. How's that? If that had been observed by armies for the last 3,000 years, that's when this was written. For those pompous fools who think this stuff is dated, mm -hmm. this thing is as contemporary as you can get. I only wish armies followed that rule. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Dennis. I need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest today is Dennis Prager. Talk about, and this is one of my personal struggles, you know, the judgment of God, the anger of God, the jealousy of God, the violence that we see, particularly in numbers uh, leading into Deuteronomy, and the goodness and the kindness of God. You know, you said earlier, God wants us to be happy, and he does. I mean, God loves us more than we could ever imagine, and yet, you see this very violent, harsh, reprimanding part of God. So talk about that. I don't have any issue with it. It's, it's interesting. Uh, th this notion that God is, is just sort of like an air conditioner blowing out love all the time, uh, no matter what the room temperature is, uh, is not one I share. When the Israelites got out of Egypt, they sang a song. It's in Exodus. Mm -hmm. And in it, they say God is a God of war. God didn't object to that statement. God is a God of war. There are times when you have to make war. There are times you have to make love. Any sophisticated or even half sophisticated moral mind knows that. If parents just shower love on their children, they'll get spoiled brats. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get good people. 
I don't have a problem with God getting angry. I don't have a problem with God destroying the world in the time of Noah. If you really want to get annoyed with God, why bother with the Midianite problem in numbers? That, that's a tiny fraction of the, of the whole human race. Why don't you get really ticked off with God? He destroyed the whole world except for Noah. Right. God wants us to be good. If we, if we screw it up, he'll, he'll start again. I don't have a problem with that. But what about, yeah, the innocent people and, you know, after Joshua moved into the promised land and all of the... Right, Joshua is post the Pentateuch. In the world of Judaism, from which I emanate, obviously, but I believe that I it's a universal commentary that I write. I don't believe it. I know it. But mm -hmm. uh, the first five books are considered particularly divine. Mm -hmm. the, the rest is divinely inspired but the, the five books, Jews say, this is the Torah that God gave to Moses. And that's, they don't say that about Joshua or Kings or Proverbs, etc. So that I just need to say that the problems of Joshua are not my problems. If some of the things in Joshua were in the first five books, I would have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. In the first five books, God never says kill everybody in Mid uh, the Midianites or Canaanites. It's Moses who does. Mm -hmm. And that's not insignificant. And by the way, I just for the record, since this comes up utterly understandably often, they were never wiped out. This was hyperbole. They were never wiped out. They appear later in the Bible. Jews are intermarrying Canaanites and Midianites later on in the Bible. They were never wiped out, even according to the Bible itself, let alone in archaeology. Look, it's it's like in, in football. Kill them. Destroy them. The, these are war terms. They were not literal terms, necessarily. So one other answer that I would like to offer, even if you're troubled by the, the treatment of the Canaanites, and by the way, again, just for the record, the Torah goes out of its way to say they were particularly horrific people. Right. Right. They sacrificed children. Right. So there is a moral justification offered uh, that and that until they became evil enough, they were not, in fact, uh, expelled from from their land or conquered really more accurately uh, by the Israelites. But even if all of that is not sufficient, this is how I look at it, because I have to deal with these issues, too, just like any other thinking person. This is the book that told me to love my neighbor as myself. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not covet your neighbor's possessions. Your uh, servant slash slave must rest every seventh day. You can't even work your animals seven days a week. They have to have a Sabbath. You have to love the stranger. The whole notion of, of loving humanity comes from these books. So you know what, on this one, event, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Maybe God knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And here's the key. What difference does it make? Is there any law that we're supposed to kill Canaanites forever? Is there any law that if you go to war, you kill everybody? No. It was a one-time event. It doesn't pertain to today. If the Torah said to me, every time you go to war, you wipe out men, women, and children, I would not be a religious person. Mm -hmm. What about Noah? 
I mean, I was thinking if, if I lived during that day and I saw this old guy making this boat and his family and everything, we were going to be wiped out. There were so many people that were wiped out that were innocent. That's true. Uh, there were so many people uh, innocent wiped out by the atom bomb in Hiroshima. There were so many innocent Germans uh, who were wiped out in the bombing of Germany. When you are part of something, you are part of something. That is why good people better fight the bad people in their society or they will be hurt eventually. Mm -hmm. that, is, that, that is what Jefferson said, even though he was a slave owner. He said, I shudder to think that God is just. Yeah. A lot of innocent people died in the United States, white and black, right. because of slavery. You better not let your society get bad because the good will suffer. Mm -hmm. That's the way it works in life. It's bad news, but it's the truth. I can't wait to see your book on numbers because I struggle with that a lot more than I do with Deuteronomy. Well, I admire the fact that you're a believer who struggles. And I, I remind Christians all the time, and it, it, it always uh, fascinates me that many don't remember this. The name of Israel, the name Israel, the chosen people is, is Israel. Mm -hmm. They got that name because Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel in the Bible. It says why that what that name means. It means struggle with God. Mm -hmm. Yisra is to struggle. El is God. Israel, struggle with God. And I, I tell people all the time, religious people should struggle with God, mm -hmm. as you are just now. But I also remind them, secular people should struggle with God, mm -hmm. too. They don't. Mm -hmm. I once debated at the National Convention of Atheists. Atheists United, I think, was the group. <laughs> yeah. And to their credit, they invited me to debate the head of the atheist group at their national convention about God, God's existence. So at a certain point, I looked at the audience, all of whom were atheists, and I said, would you please raise your hand if you ever doubt your atheism? You see a baby born and you think, wow, maybe there is a God. This looks miraculous. Or you see the Grand Canyon. Whoa. Not one hand went up. And then I say, that's interesting. Because whenever I ask religious groups, raise your hand if you ever doubt your faith, almost every hand goes up. Hmm. In other words, we religious people question ourselves more than you atheists do. That's pretty smart. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there. You know, and you talk about how loving God is hard work. And I, and I loved it when you say that because it is hard work. You know, it's hard to pursue God. It's hard to pray. It's hard to read scripture. And yet God, again, this is another struggle because God is the one who calls us. Do you believe that God calls us or do we seek God? I mean, you know, this is our Calvinism versus, you know. Well, you hit the nail on the head again. It's a verse in Deuteronomy. It's one of those I isolated for my column for Fox News on Deuteronomy that just came out. Seek and you shall seek God and you shall find him. You won't find him if you don't seek him. Maybe he appears to some people. I'm not one of them. Mm -hmm. I sought him and I found him. You know, I think about people who are isolated, who don't have Bibles and they're, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Is it possible for them to know God, even though they don't have scripture and books and things like that? That's, an, that's a really excellent question. 
so obviously they're not going to know the God of the Bible if they don't live in some remote area where they've not met anybody who does. That's why I, I, the person that I think of when I, when I write this book is a peasant in, in China mm-hmm. who never heard of Abraham, Moses, Ten Commandments. I'd like them to know about it because the world that did know about this Bible made a better world. Mm-hmm. The only place in the world that had human rights, women's rights, democracy, free speech, free religion is the Western world with all its flaws. And this is the world based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. It must have done must have done something right. right. So I'd like to spread it. We only have a couple minutes left, but I, I do have a question for you. Um, well, I have two questions for you. So the Torahs is the behavioral approach to happiness. So are you saying that happiness comes through obeying God and keeping his commands? Is that what you're, what you're saying? Is that what the Torah is teaching? Well, one, only, only if you obey the commandment to be happy. And, and that's in Deuteronomy, and I, I discuss it there. There right. is a command right. that, you shall, that yeah. you shall be happy. There is a, a phrase later in the Bible, a worship God in joy. As I, I point out, and, and it's, in my, it's in my commentary, the best advertisement for atheism is an unhappy religious person. It's true. I often tell parents this because I really believe it. And I think this is really appropriate what you're talking about too. I said, you know, great parenting is very simple, but it's hard. You know, it's like loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Simple. But who can do that? I mean, it's so hard and loving that your neighbor is yourself. You know, I think sometimes we pass it off because it's like the Ten Commandments. People say, oh, I do that. And then they don't even know what the Ten are. Why is loving God so hard? Hmm. Well, I can speak for me. It's hard for me. It wasn't hard for my dad, just for the record. He he loved God truly Mm -hmm. very deeply. That was not transmitted to me. I see all the unjust suffering in the world, and it's hard to love the author of the world in which there is so much unjust suffering. So I I admit it. I I revere God. I fear God in the best sense of the word. I believe God is just. I believe God is good. Uh, But I can't say that I have found loving him easy. I will say, however, that since I'm commanded to love him, mm-hmm. I make the effort. That that I can say, but it, yeah. it is not easy. Some people find it much easier yeah. than I do, or obviously mm-hmm. you do. You and I, by the way, mm-hmm. are kindred spirits. Yeah. I can oh, tell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this has been wonderful. Boy, oh boy, I could go for a whole nother hour because I would love for you to go, you know, chapter by chapter. I wish we had the time to do that. We'll do another one, and if you ever obviously use it, it would, I would be honored. It's the Rational Bible, Deuteronomy, is coming out right now. This is really meant to better people's lives. That's why I'm doing it. Absolutely. Well, Dennis, I thank you so much for joining me, and I encourage everybody out there to read the Rational Bible and then Deuteronomy, God, blessings, and curses. Thank you so much for joining me. It was great. Thank you. God bless you. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Dennis Prager. Make sure to check out his brand new book, 
the rational Bible, Deuteronomy, God's blessings and curses. Let's go over my points to ponder. One, read what the Bible has to say about life and God. You know, many of us have peculiar views about reading and studying the Bible. We fear that we may not interpret it correctly. We wonder if it's true or not, or we might become Bible thumpers. These aren't true. The Bible opens a world of beautiful literature, concepts you've never heard of, but more importantly, it introduces us to the love of God, which is life-changing. Talk with anybody who's spent time reading scripture, and you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who has not become a richer person with a deeper understanding of the love and character of God. Two, teach your children about God. Many parents fear talking to their kids about God because they believe if they do so, they're gonna turn their kids off or make them feel pressured, or because they want their kids to find their own religion when they get older. Well, this is like telling your child to learn about algebra without having sent him to school. It's only after they've been taught what the Bible has to say about them, God, Jesus, prayer, and faith, that they can choose their faith. How can you choose anything if you don't know about God? Many Jewish children learn about God from the time they're very little. They learn Hebrew, the tenets of God, and are given a deep understanding of life and where they fit in that life. Don't deprive your kids of showing them what their spiritual life is all about. Three, be open to reading the Bible. Whether you've read any of the Bible or you're a Bible scholar, we all have biases and thoughts about it before we even open the pages. This is because we've heard about it from friends or relatives, books or media. And when we do, we form opinions about it without having read a page. Don't do this. Open your mind and begin to read it. You may want to start at the beginning of the Torah with Genesis or in the New Testament with the Gospel of John. Just as you don't want to deprive your children of growing a strong faith, you don't want to deprive yourself either. I want to thank my guest, Dennis Prager, for joining me on the show today. You can find out more about Dennis at DennisPrager.com. That's DennisPrager, P-R-A-G-E-R.com. You can also follow him on social media. Just search for Dennis Prager in your internet browser. Let's recap my points to ponder. One, read what the Bible has to say about life and God. Two, teach your children about God. Three, be open to reading about the Bible. If you have worries or concerns or you just need a little encouragement when it comes to parenting, check out meekerparenting.com. I have a lot of resources available to you. And if you know a dad who needs a boost, check out my brand new Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters Masterclass. And always remember that great kids are raised, not born. 